passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting live and on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today is Sunday, May 15th, 2022. Uh, and I'm joined uh, by our special guest host this weekend, this Sunday. Uh, Jesse Collings joins us once again. His, his earlier appearance a few weeks ago, I think after WrestleMania, was so well-reviewed, the people demanded that he come back. Welcome back, Jesse. Thanks, Brandon. I'm glad I could pass my my tryout uh, to to appear as as Chris Scullo's, uh understudy and fill in for when he's off doing uh, his, his his activities. We had you into the WrestleNomics Performance Center. Uh, we 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 tested whether you were coachable or not. We uh, made sure that you had no indie bad habits. I was going to uh, say I had some bad habits from uh, <laughs> I had some bad habits from other podcasting. I had to be hammered out. <laughs> I got a uh, a property of WrestleNomics t shirt that I'm wearing. You just can't see it because it's cut off. Yes, yes, you're still an independent contractor, uh, not an employee, luckily. Um, but you you're coming to us from from the, the Boston area. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm in East Arlington right now. I'm from Waltham, Massachusetts originally, which is a few miles away, but basically in the inner suburbs of Boston. Okay. Yes, I, I'm coming to you as usual from, from Buffalo, uh, where we had a, a very, very uh, disturbing uh, incident, terrorist attack, you should say, uh, yesterday with uh, shooting about 10 minutes from where I live uh, at a top supermarket on the east side of Buffalo, uh, where 10 people were killed. Um, this is obviously a, a racially motivated, um, terrible incident. Um, so if we uh, if we get any super chats today, uh, I'm going to take that money and match it to send it to uh, something called. If I can put it on the screen and actually, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to send it to Buffalo Community Fridge, which is a, an organization that uh, collects food for for people uh, in, in need and. Uh, the, the top supermarket is the only major supermarket that I know of on the east side of Buffalo. So, um, yeah, it's just a, it's been a, a really upsetting day yesterday and continuing today with uh, hearing the details of, of what happened yesterday. So uh, we, will, we will send any, again, any super chats that you send today, uh, any comments or questions that you have, you can uh, hit the super chat button here. How do I put this on the screen? Uh, if we go to this, this, this thing right here, right. And actually if I, if I do this, this is what the, uh, the Buffalo community fridge website looks like. If you want to check it out for yourself to make sure this is a legitimate organization. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll do that today. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, it's just, uh, it's very disturbing to see these things happen again and again in the United States where, um, you know, a lot of other countries have social media, and have people with hateful ideologies, uh, but 
no other country really has the amount of civilian-owned guns that we have in the United States. And, you know, I'm afraid this is just going to happen again and again until things change here. So that's all uh, that I have to say about it. But uh, I guess I just wanted to say something about it before we go on to talk about something as frivolous as Roman Reigns and pro wrestling business here today. So we will we will get to it then. Um, so... We'll start with uh, the news coming out. Uh, this was on the 7th. What day of the week was that? That was Saturday. Uh, coming off of a house show uh, in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, Roman Reigns was on the microphone. Uh, this description comes from Fightful. Uh, Roman Reigns grabbed some attention after his Trenton, New Jersey promo at a live event went viral where, when, when he indicated he didn't know if he'd be back there. Uh, a WWE source told Fightful that they believed Reigns was referencing that eventually his schedule will likely include less house show events. Um, so there's a video here that was shared on Twitter where Reigns is saying, quote, I've been here a couple times in the past 10 years. Uh, he also said, I'm starting to work into a new phase in my career. And honestly, I don't know if I'll be back here again. If that's the case, I just want to say thank you. For all these years of support, end quote. Uh, Reigns has been pulled from advertising for TV and house shows. He's been pulled from advertising for the Hell in the Cell premium live event, which is happening June 5th. Uh, he is, though, still featured in the Clash at the Castle advertising. That's the big stadium premium live event that's happening on September 3rd. Uh, but it looks like maybe somewhat like John Cena did about five years ago or so. He's Roman Reigns is the top star who's being... Uh, moved into becoming more of a part-time star as we've seen sort of the trend over the last few decades, well, last decade or two of uh, the big stars don't appear on house shows. And uh, we will discuss what what effect that might have on W business. Um, do you think this is going to affect house show attendance, Jesse? Do you think this is going to affect TV ratings or anything of that nature? I think it's hard to tell. I think that, was it, Two years ago, when Reigns, you know, was off television for quite a long period of time during the pandemic and during the Thunderdome period, um, there was there wasn't really that noticeable of a drop off or dip up uh, when he was off WWE and then when he came back onto television. When he did come back onto television, ratings did go up, but that corresponded more with the introduction of the Thunderdome. Exactly. Um, yep. There's also like the return of Sasha Banks that might have helped. There are some other factors that went into it, so it's kind of hard to tell. We haven't. I don't think we have a tremendous amount of data to kind of show what is, you know, a show with Roman Reigns do versus a show without Roman Reigns, especially because I think most people would agree that he's kind of a bigger star now over the last 18 months than he was any other previous time. Um, and the data that we have from the past 18 months due to the pandemic, due to the some of those shows not being, you know, touring shows, some of those being in the Thunderdome shows, we don't really just have a lot of data about it. Um I have kind of been some person that uh, someone who has thought that he hasn't made that big of a difference on some shows. I remember I, I did a lot of research on the. Um, do you remember the the WWE the first show they ran at the the uh, UBS Arena in Long Island, New York, the one they were competing with WWE uh, AEW was running a few days later, and. Uh, oh no, was that? Now, now I'm trying to remember. I think that might have so, been the Ma Madison Square Garden show. Yeah. There, so there was the Matt so there was the Madison Square Garden show and they announced Roman Reigns for the Madison Square Garden show because it was like a raw show. There's a December they, December yeah. Christmas time ish 
house show, their usual big holiday tour where they usually do a, a lot of really good business, uh, pre-pandemic at least, um, that they had an MSG show. Attendance was rather disappointing. Um, and then separately, there was WWE and AEW about nine days apart running UBS Arena where AEW for a Dynamite outdrew WWE for a Raw. Yes, and I remember they put Roman Reigns on the show for the Madison Square Garden show. And I think he sold like 300 tickets over the first two weeks that he yeah. was added to the show. And well, so I, th- I think he might have been added to that Raw in a dark match, too. Yeah. I, I will scramble to Google. But that's just one, you know, to be honest, that's just one point of evidence. I don't really, I, I'll be interested to see what that looks like um, over the long term. I'm kind of. I mean, what do you think, Brandon? I, I'm, I'm personally, I don't think he makes that big of a difference um, for live attendance or ratings. You can kind of look over the last few weeks where he's kind of been on some Raws and not been on some Raws and kind of gauge what the difference has been yeah. in viewership. Um, yeah. Hasn't made that much of a difference. Now, over a long period of time where Reigns is gone for a month or two months where people kind of learn to now expect that he's not going to be on these shows, maybe that gives us a little bit more data to kind of show uh, his impact on a week-to-week basis. Yeah, I just just by doing a Google here, Roman Reigns added to UBS Arena. I, I do find some stories from, say, October 12, 2021. The UBS Arena in Long Island has announced that Roman Reigns will be appearing on live on Monday Night Raw, November 20, 29th. Um, he may or may not have been involved in that MSG show. But uh, the, the, the point being that uh, certainly in the, in the New York market, there were occasions where, where AEW recently has outdrawn WWE. Uh, um, so Chris Gull and I, just this past what Wednesday night, we did our Who's a Draw podcast. You can find that on YouTube. The audio version is on Patreon. Uh, we were, we, we, in a very isolated basis, we took just the month of April, last month, and we looked at all of the quarter hours, all of the YouTube data, all of the Google trends. So what we've got here back on this slide on the screen is this is actually not just April, what we're looking at on this chart here, but this is this is last 12 months, the last full 12 months. So May 2021 through April 2022. This is the worldwide Google Web Search Index for um, every wrestling personality that I can think of. And I think to to qualify for this chart, you had to have one match during this period. Um, So number one is John Cena. This is a normalized to 100 because it's Google Trends data. So it's always normalized to 100. Or I think I retroactively normalized it to 100 to make it sort of consistent with what Google Trends data usually is. Anyway, by that measure, John Cena is a 100 in worldwide Google web search in the last 12 months. 100 is John Cena. Roman Reigns is a 54. So Roman Reigns is about half as searched over these 12 months as John Cena is. And then after that, at a 37, we've got Brock Lesnar. And after that, we've got, got Ronda Rousey at a 20. Um, what, what we found on Wednesday night, at least in the isolated case of April, is that I, you know, when it comes to quarter hours, when it comes to YouTube data, when it comes to Google Trends, uh, there really isn't a bigger star than Roman Reigns, at least in that isolated case. Um, how does that compare to other, I think what people are probably thinking about though, right? It's like, well, how does that really compare to others who have been really outstanding draws, needle movers, if you will, uh, for at, at other times in, in wrestling history for their given promotion? Um, that I, I can't give you a real confident answer other than to rely on my intuition and, you know, sort of, what I sense is, is, is the case, which would be what? Um, I think that the point 
that you mentioned, Jesse, about him really becoming an important star in the last 18 months or so. I, I agree with that, that he my sense, my vibe is that Roman Reigns in this period, since he returned the week that the Thunderdome was introduced, I don't think he's been pinned since. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think he's been pinned since he came back uh, in the summer of 2020. Um, he's been pushed really hard. And lo and behold, people who win matches and who are protected well and who are booked well and presented as super strong tend to be um, tend to get over and become meaningful stars. Uh, is, John, is, is Roman Reigns the star that John Cena was at his peak, whenever that is? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. What, what, what I sense is the case is that WWE has been... And then there's data to back this point up. W has, has been less popular from 2016 to 2021. I believe in the argued prior episodes of this podcast, I believe that popularity descent has flatlined, has finally stabilized um, in the last year to date. Uh, the power of WWE's ability to draw consumer interest, not business interest, fi- finances are great, but consumer interest is down. Everybody's power is kind of down across that, down into the right scale. Um, nonetheless, on that, on that weakened, in, 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 in that sort of weakened universe, Roman Reigns is still the biggest star. I, I, I do think that. I think we have this tendency to sort of dismiss the degree to which Roman Reigns is a star, uh, which I, I, th- I think, in my experience, is a little bit over-argued. Over, over, over um, I think. What, what do you sorry? What, what do you mean by saying over argued? I I think there's understandable and justified resentment for for Roman Reigns being pushed as heavily as he has been, and 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 I think he has been pushed to such an extent that it that it it's an expense on everyone else's potential star power because Vince McMahon has been in this you know particularly from the years of 2015 to, to 2020 has been in this sort of, I guess maybe 2019 has been in, in this fight with fans to get Roman Reigns over in the way that he wanted him to get over. And that hurt everybody else's ability to get over. W was worse off for it. Um, and because of that hubristic, you know, event over the course of years, um, I think there's within wrestling media in some parts and an and eagerness to dismiss the degree to which Roman Reigns is an economic positive difference, uh, at least in, in his isolated gross case, not in like the net, the, the net effect of trying to get Roman Reigns over to the degree that he did and the expense that Vince McMahon uh, ha- has caused to everyone else's overness and economic value uh, is, is not insignificant. And I think it has hurt, the degree to which WWE is able to draw consumer interest. Um, but I do think Roman Reigns is the biggest economic difference maker in WWE regard, regardless of, of that in his isolated case. Again, everybody else is probably hurt because of, of the war on fans, if you will, that Vince McMahon has mm-hmm. waged uh, in the name of Roman Reigns in the late 2010s. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm totally in agreement in the sense that there's no disputing that Reigns is the biggest star in WWE. I don't think there's any disputing that Reigns is the biggest star in all of wrestling. Um, you know, you know, not factoring in maybe people like John Cena who are doing part-time work or, or, or even like a Brock Lesnar or someone like that. Um, I, I, I just, for me with the thing with Reigns is like people will point to like, Oh, look at his YouTube views. He's ahead of everyone else. Look at his merch sales. He's ahead of everyone else to the, which we don't that, know his merch. Sales, yeah. To the, I, extent I would suspect, that, yeah. to the extent that we know, his yeah. merch sales, if he's making a difference at the, you know, house shows he's on versus house shows he's not on, anything like that. I mean, I would expect that would be the case because as you played out, we're in 
this, you know, almost 10 years of building up this guy to be pushed in, in a lot of ways, the only person who has been allowed to be a star in WWE. And so I, I, I would be a complete disaster if he had absolutely no impact relative to anybody else on the roster. Does he have as big of an impact as I think that they would hope? Uh, I don't know. They make it sound like he does, but I, I think this whole thing with, 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 you know, I heard this argument this past week when people talk about Reigns being off the house shows and this whole thing, like, you know, they don't care. You know, Reigns cannot be on a lot of shows. He can miss pay-per-view events. He can miss, um, he has both titles. It doesn't matter if the title's not on the show because people are just here to see the brand and that individual stars don't make a difference in WWE anymore. The brand is the star. And so they'll draw, you know, whatever to, to, to every single one of their shows, regardless of whether Reigns is on it, regardless of whether the championship is defended on it, regardless of whether there are any interesting matches on it at all, they will still draw a, a strong enough number to, 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 to justify them not caring. Um, and I, I really disagree with that. I think we only have to go back a year to see the kind of business impact that John Cena's run, you know, return to WWE had to see like, yeah, like a individual star that has real drawing power, like an actual star can make a really big difference on WWE economically. Look at the business that SummerSlam last year did compared to SummerSlam this year. Just, I think the attendance is going to be very different. Uh, you know, the show in Las Vegas versus the show in Nashville. Uh, you look at, there were, you know, there were, John Cena was doubling house show attendance for shows that he was on shows doing 10,000 fans when they would do 5,000 fans. Um, we have this image here, just not to interrupt you. Uh, yeah, no, and, and, image and here with, with John Cena's uh, and, match. And that's kind of that's kind of my general point on this is that like, of course Roman Reigns is a big star. Um, how does he compare to the last star who's kind of pushed to his degree? I don't know. It feels like the last star that was pushed to his degree was Hulk Hogan in the nineteen eighties. Um, but to compare him to John Cena, who he kind of effectively was replaced as the figurehead of WWE, um, it's kind of it's very. Uh, I think that there's a big stark difference in it. And I think things like, oh, he's, you know, finally over with the fans live, right? He's not getting, you know, go away. He, he's everyone that's there kind of, he's kind of, he's the biggest heel in WWE, but he's also kind of the biggest baby face in WWE at the same time. But I think a lot of that is, well, you, you know, over the last, since 2016, you run off a lot of those fans who didn't like the Roman Reigns push. And so they stopped watching. Yeah. And what you're left with is that baseline of hardcore fans that would have always probably cheered for Roman Reigns certainly would know now that he is in a character that is more befitting of his um, personality. Yeah. I, I guess if we're trying to answer the question, will Roman Reigns working a, a lighter schedule with fewer matches, is that going to have a negative effect on W's business? Uh, probably. I think so. Um, if, and, and who knows what, what he's going to do. Is he going to go do movies? Is he going to, we don't, we don't know exactly what is going to happen in terms of what is his match count going to look like next year and, and things like that. Um, but I, I think one thing that um, I often fail to bring up is when I talk about, like I just did, the popularity decline of WWE with wrestling fans or with consumers um, from about 2016 to 2021, we talk a lot about how, and I talk a lot about how WWE has turned off their fans. They've alienated their core base of fans. Um, and I tell this story about how it's this negative thing that Vince McMahon has done, but it's also this lack of John Cena that, that coincides with that timeline too. Um, 
where what we've got on the screen here is sort of this decline in merchandise sales from 2017 on, decline in web search from about 2016 on, decline in attendance from about 2017 on, uh, decline in licensing revenue from 2017 on. And that, if we go back to, to John Cena's match count, that doesn't coincide exactly. It, it's delayed, but John Cena's match count falls in 2015, and then he essentially becomes a part-timer from 2016 and forward. And I think he has a shoulder injury at the very end of 2015 that takes him out of action. But, uh, you know, he only has 37 matches and only 12 of those on TV in 2016. And uh, he's been a part-timer, I think, at at the least ever since. Um, You know, so, yeah, I I think uh, it's a a question of, well, is is anybody going to be built up in absence of Roman Reigns? And I have, we can discuss this, but I have little faith. (laughs) Do you want want to do... Two of these, we have two super chats. You want to do those? Oh, sure. Uh, we have, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is from CWJ128. Good morning. Who do you think is more responsible f- for bringing in more revenue to WWE, Roman Reigns or Nick Khan? Thank you and be well. That's a, we could, uh, that's a, a good paradigm shifting way to think about the question. Who's the biggest star in WWE? Is it, is it Roman Reigns? Is it Brock Lesnar? Is it Ron? No, it's Nick Khan. Nick Khan's the big star. Um, Certainly, when you think about where, where does we get their money from, it's less and less from fans, from consumer-generated revenues, and it's more so from business relationships, including their TV relationships, including their relationship with the government of Saudi Arabia. Um, I, I guess if you subtract Nick Khan from the equation, this is this is still happening for WWE. Um, you know, Nick Khan was only helping WWE out beginning in about 2018, if you want to start the clock from when he helps WWE make the, the, the current US TV deals that they have. Um, WWE would still, was still becoming in that situation in terms of the greater proportion of their revenue coming from business relationships. Um, but Nikon is helping. To what degree? It's hard to say. Um, maybe they don't split off of the SmackDown rights, if not for Nikon. And they're making many hundreds of many not hundreds many millions of dollars less i think nick khan has largely outperformed the person or people that he replaced and i yes. don't think roman reigns has if you i think <laughs> nick khan has done Fair. better than george barrios than roman reigns has done better relative yes. to john cena absolutely we can say nick khan is a more effective uh draw for WWE than george barrios was i think we could i think we can say that definitively yeah we also got uh, MG, MJG here. MJ from NJ. Yes. Oh, so you know. Uh, yes. Um, yes. He says, if you put Heyman with anyone else, would they be interesting in draw in programs with Cena and Brock? I think that anyone who came would be working with John Cena or Brock Lesnar would draw with Paul Heyman. Um, I kind of think Paul Heyman's been mailing it in for like a few years now as a personality. And I'm kind of sick of him. If I'm being perfectly honest, which is probably an unpopular opinion. If we put John Cena with with anyone else, I mean, meaning other than Roman Reigns, right? Would they yeah. be interesting? Um, not anyone else, you know. Um, well, I think Cena alone would draw. He could be out there feuding with, you know, Drew Gulak, and those shows would do good compared to shows that didn't have John Cena on them at all. But yes, if we're talking about like Paul Heyman and Cody Rhodes, or Paul Heyman and Seth Rollins, or Paul Heyman and Drew McIntyre or some relatively top, top star. Yeah. I, I think this just crosses my mind all the time. And I worry about being a broken record about this, but so much of 
so much of how we try to think about wrestling is so broken by, I think, that the, the fact that W has done such an incompetent job creating stars and promoting stars and promoting interest in matches and has done, have done such a superb job of making so much that could be meaningful be meaningless. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to, I guess it's hard to, to answer questions like this when we don't have sort of this base normal case of what a competent, at least top number one worldwide wrestling company would look like. Um, but, but yeah, I think, I think Reigns is, is, suited for his role in WWE. Um, it's hard. It's not easy for me to make a case that there's this other star, at least currently in WWE, who should be this bigger, who should be promoted harder than Roman Reigns. Um, at this point, the ship has sailed on some other people, including the former Dean Ambrose, I think. Uh, but, but I, I don't think like, well, now is a tremendous opportunity to try to do that since Reigns is, is not going to be on. But I think at this point, Part of the challenge is you're kind of counting on, you're counting on, to me, if I was booking, you're counting on Reigns to make somebody new. Because one effective thing that can come from pushing Reigns this hard is that when he does eventually lose and he does eventually drop a title or two, that person will have achieved something that does actually feel really important, which I feel like a lot of recent WWE championship wins or first title reigns for people has not done. This seems like something uh, this seems like a loss and a win and a loss that would come with some real significance. I just don't know. WWE clearly doesn't have that in the books and they, and they weird. They, it's, it's strange to think that they feel comfortable having both titles and the top star off of their shows because if they didn't, they wouldn't. I was going to ask you, um, Brandon, we're starting to see this now historically in wrestling. Someone's career would be, they'd be a massive big star for decades and then they would go into kind of a part-time role where they'd wrestle a dozen matches a year, and those matches would be really big and important. It seems like as the money has gotten bigger for the individual talent, that that stage of their career is starting earlier and earlier. Like Reigns is now moving into the late career John Cena stage of his career, um, or the late career Hulk Hogan stage, or, or whoever you want to use as like a former big star that is kind of and he's now, only thirty-six, right? It seems like he he would still be in his prime, but probably because he's made so much money and you know, in his career and he has been uh, he has enough, you know, clout within WWE to, for, for his, for, you know, his perspective, he is now at the position of his career where he can make more money and work less dates. Something that he observed Brock Lesnar do for years and years when he was working, you know, a hundred plus matches a year. Yeah. And that would inject that the, the, if he were to work more dates rather than fewer, that in all likelihood means that he's just working more house shows and the house shows are of such diminished importance relative to prior eras. And they become less important as this company makes more and more money from media and TV rights fees. Um, so from the company's perspective, it's less and less important over time that they have their top stars on more events rather than fewer events. Um, and they're, they are running fewer house shows um, than they were in say 2018. They, they have continued this cut down volume of shows. Yes. Roman Reigns said he is not, he might not come back to Trenton, New Jersey, but right. I think that is kind of indicative of, yeah, this house show in Trenton, New Jersey might not be number one on my schedule, uh, you know, in the future. He also cut like a, uh, I don't know if it was like an Instagram promo or just some like personal kind of thing where it was basically in character, but he did talk about how like, 
maybe this is the last time you'll see, you know, me and the Usos all together. And you'll never know when the last time you see us is going to be. So cherish those moments. Like it's kind of in person, but also kind of alluding to this idea that he wasn't going to be around um, in the future. Yeah. I think it has, and maybe they just don't care about this, but I think it has a, a risk of making house shows even less valuable in terms of, you know, I, I don't know if I, I think I joked about this, not publicly, but that, only, you know, real stars don't work house shows. It's becoming, that's becoming the case, you know, mm-hmm. um, where all the, the top stars, they only, they appear on TV and they appear on, on premium live events. You know, Steve Austin only appears on WrestleMania. Um, but uh, it matters less in this model of business, as long as the majority of the, the revenue continues to come from media. I don't see why that will ever change. Um, that, that matters less. So they're, yeah, maybe- they're okay. Maybe this is a good transition, but it seems like house shows exist now more um, as like uh, training grounds for WWE, whether they're working on a match for an upcoming pay-per-view and they want to run a, they want to have them do a bunch of house show matches. And obviously with NXT kind of introducing house shows back into its loop or planning to introduce house shows back to its loop. It's almost like now house shows, we talk about them more as like with the benefit they can have to the talent as opposed to, being a real revenue generator or helping the business in any way, because yeah. realistically they don't. Yeah. I, I have to more and more think about how shows as, as, as like what side effect value do these have? Because I think if you reinvented the business today and a AW kind of has in terms of they had to start from scratch with their own business plan, that you just don't do house shows and, and what AW's done like one or two house shows ever in its history that weren't taped for some form of media distribution. Um, but we can move to NXT and to, to kind of segue into two related topics, I think, in terms of if, if Reigns is going to take up less even TV time, certainly house show time, that appears to be likely the case, right? But if he's going to go and do movies or something like that, or he's, he's just going to be on TV less, uh, is there somebody, is there anybody in WWE that's being built up to, to, to take some of that, that uh, absent space that will be left uh, by Roman Reigns if he's around less? Um, and uh, we've got the news this week, uh, this is from a report coming from John Pollock of Post Wrestling, uh, where he writes, after a lengthy absence, NXT is expected to resume live events in the state of Florida beginning next month. On Wednesday's edition of Wrestling Observer Radio, Dave Meltzer reported that there were talks of resuming live events for NXT, and Post Wrestling has learned that a schedule has been put together that will see the brand resume non-televised shows. NXT has not held any house shows since the pandemic began in early 2020 with the brand undergoing major changes last September with the formation of NXT 2.0 and many talent departures. Their last non-televised show occurred on March 7th, 2020, with shows in Michigan and Orlando. That was part of the National Loop. Uh, The live events are expected to resume in June, so next month, uh, with multiple sources speaking with post-wrestling with knowledge of the internal schedule and stating that as of now, those events will be just in Florida. Uh, So WWE... NXT going back to house shows sounds like the Largo loop though. Probably not the national tour. No, I think they would be rightfully weary of expecting to draw very well on a national tour. And I think nobody really cares about attendance at the Florida shows, but if they were going into major markets and there was all sorts of photos and stuff going around of empty, you know, bingo halls and empty auditoriums, it wouldn't necessarily be uh, well-received. Yeah. So one thing that I've noticed lately, uh, if we go go back to this slide showing, so W has three major 
divisions of their business that they report on in their public filings. The media division, which is an increasing majority of their revenue. The consumer products division, which is merchandise and licensing deals for video games and toys. And then live events, the live event division. Decades ago, live events were the main source of revenue for a wrestling company, uh, but not today. And in the last few quarters, before the pandemic even, W was struggling to make a profit in its live events division. What we have on the screen here is operating income for the live events division. Uh, operating income is just a form of profit before taxes and things like that. And in the number of quarters, as you can see here, they were losing money in this division, uh, especially quarters that did not contain a WrestleMania, or if they were making a profit, it was pretty slim. Uh, since the return to touring, though, this company has been able to make a profit. Um, and I'm not, it sort of dawned on me after the last earnings call that maybe, maybe one of the key differences here, maybe the biggest difference is that, yes, they're running fewer events, uh, and but they still struggled to, to make a profit in Q1 2019, 20, no, Q1 2020, which is right here, right? They lost a few million dollars. I can't, I can't see what the data label says, but they lost a couple million dollars in Q1 2020, which was only a couple weeks of the pandemic with, with touring stopped. Uh, and they, were run, they ran a similar number of events, you know, with a, a similar amount of frequency as, as they are now since the return to touring. So that makes me wonder if the key difference here is that they're just not running these NXT house shows uh, whether whether it was the national tour that might have been a burden on their finances or whether it was the Florida loop that might have been a burden, I don't know. But they're not doing those NXT shows uh, anymore, anymore, or at least they they haven't been up until now. Uh, where where I, I, I ran the numbers, this is from Cage Match data, but they were, you know, in 2014 they were running, they ran 65. NXT house shows. This is just house shows, non-televised events. Doesn't doesn't count any of the TV tapings. They ran 65 house shows in 2014, and they ran upwards of 100 house shows uh, in more recent years than the late 2010s. Uh, so that's a lot of events, and a lot of those events, you know, af after 2015 or so, they started to run what we might call the national tour. They did run a, a one really brief um, international tour where they drew, drew strongly, but they never went back to it. So I wonder how profitable that was. Um, but uh, yeah, if you're running an extra hundred shows, that might not be drawing tremendously well. Although I know they were running in smaller venues in the in the national tour. Um, but uh, th these events, in terms of revenue, they did did disclose some details about that. They gave us some information about uh, the the average attendance, I believe, and the uh, the average gate of these events they they made between six and seven million dollars uh on nxt live events uh in 2016 and 2019 six six to yeah six to seven million dollars which this company had made you know in these years 700 800 million dollars so this is less than one percent of their revenue um pretty small on their scale uh but this is something that i've been questioning hard for a while why in this nxt 2.0 uh, world where you're favoring people without match experience, it seems. Why are you not giving these people as much ring experience as possible? I know they've been reportedly doing these sort of empty PC house shows with no actual audience there, just for training purposes, which is better than nothing. But it, it sure would help to be in front of actual crowds more often. I think everyone, uh, even people like myself who are pretty skeptical about the performance center's ability to train talent in general. I think everyone would agree that 
they they really, especially the really new talent, which is now taking up more and more of the time on NXT television program, would benefit from working these house shows and working more events in front of live fans, even if those are pretty small scale and maybe there's only a couple of hundred people attending them. Um, for WWE, this is a company that, you know, like a lot of companies is, is trying to make a profit off of everything and not trying to lose money. Um, but you have to weigh that value in how much money are we willing to lose as an investment in our future? And I think that is kind of a whole story with the performance center and the whole story of NXT in a lot of ways, which is a struggle between this thing's not making us any money versus this is a wise investment that we need to, accept as a loss leader because it will eventually help us make a lot of money when we have all this in-house talent. I, I think the idea is what we have on the screen here. I should probably explain is that I went through cage match and I collected all of the wrestlers who have wrestled or at least have been in the match results. So they might've been ringside who have been in match results in cage match in 2022 for NXT. So everybody who's, who's had a match been or ringside for a match in NXT this year grabbed all of those wrestlers. I excluded all of the wrestlers like Dolph Ziggler and AJ Styles and Natalia, who are who I would call main roster visitors. I excluded all the wrestlers like Tommaso Ciampa, or excuse me, Ciampa, who have been promoted to the main roster. And I excluded everybody who's now been released, including the most recent round of releases. Um, so we have just the people who are still on the roster now who are, you know, uh, proper NXT talents. Uh, so what we have is we've got uh, I did a distribution chart here and, you know, the majority of the so we've got I don't know how many this is, but it's upwards of 20 uh, women on the roster, uh, 10 of them. You know, the biggest group have less than 50 matches in cage match. Now, if you've been working the indies, um, not every match is likely in here, but this is probably a pretty good impression of the degree of experience that you've got. And we've got uh, on, on the men's side, we've got, you know. 10 wrestlers with more than 500 matches like Roderick Strong, who are very experienced. And then we've got 12 with less than 50. So I, d I didn't go back and, and experiment with other points of time in NXT's history here, but I would expect it looks very different um, relative to this, where you just got more wrestlers with less experience. Um, I've, I don't know. I would speculate that maybe new management new uh, executive management coming in with Nikon and the Christina Salen era uh, came in here and looked at ways that they can make the, the company more profitable. And maybe one of the, one of the areas that they looked at was, you know, why, and it's the pandemic anyway, but why, why would we resume doing house shows if, if they're a, a, you know, a loss when we've got a, a in probably in their view, an outstanding performance center that's, you know, it's world-class and we were spending a lot of money on the performance center too, I'm sure millions. Uh, and, uh, you know, we got this great facility with all these great trainers. Why would we do house shows that, that cost a lot of money when they can get the same experience in our wonderful facility? Um, I think that's how a person who, who has not spent their life ingrained in the wrestling business might view it. Um, and I would view it differently that you need as real as possible experience to become a great pro wrestler. Uh, so at least they're finally deciding to do that. The more I think about it. It just seems to me like the performance center in general, and maybe this isn't the entire, this wasn't the idea behind its creation. Um, but it just seems to me that the performance center, it's just kind of a big con. It's this thing that people can talk about that, like you said, people who maybe don't know that much about pro wrestling, 
will immediately buy in and think it's an incredible idea and say, you know, we'll give you a tour of the performance center and look at this. You know, most people learn in like a, a, a storage locker that somebody has rented out and stuffed a ring in or someone or learned in a garage. Look at this multimillion dollar facility. Look at this, you know, state of the art, you know, workout room we have. Look at all these rings we have. Look at all these trainers that we have. And it's this, this message that's saying, look at us. We're training. Look at how great we're going to be because we have this training facility and everything's going to be a lot better. And the results from talent that has been trained in the performance center, I think have been poor. And on top of that, I think of other things like this, 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 these NIL deals that they have. I'm really skeptical of a lot of those in the sense that they just seem like a way for WWE to talk about how they're allegedly revolutionizing the, um, recruitment of talent and the training of talent. I've read so many of these articles, Brandon, there was a really prominent one on the athletic that have these articles where it's like WWE is revolutionizing recruiting pro wrestlers. They're got, they're looking at college football players and they're going to them and they're saying, Hey, if you're not going to make the NFL, why don't you train here to be a pro wrestler? It'll be a great career for you. And it's messaged as if that is some sort of revolutionary new topic a new idea that nobody has ever thought of before, even though the recruitment of football stars into becoming professional wrestlers has been going on since Gus Sonnenberg was wrestling in the 1920s. Or and probably what's, before what's that. The, uh, the college football to West Texas State? Where yeah, like, yes. Like a dozen. West, <laughs> so West Texas State, which had the connection with the Funk Brothers, used to just pluck people out of um, West Texas State, uh, you know, Stan Hansen, Tully Blanchard, Dusty Rhodes. Uh, Bruiser Brody. Yeah. Bruiser Brody, like literally like Texas state, West Texas state has produced way more memorable talent than the WWE performance center has. Um, But to me, it's just the more I think about it, all of this this stuff, you know, they bring it up on the, the, every single, um, you know, investor call that they have. It's always talked about, especially when someone's like, Hey, when are you guys going to make new stars? If John Cena's leaving and they'll say, well, we've got the WWE performance center and we've made this investment and, don't worry, it's going to work out and be great. But to me, as someone who's been very skeptical of this whole thing, and I look at, you know, we're now looking at almost, I think almost 10 years of the WWE Performance Center. 2013, uh, yeah. Yeah, almost 10 years. And we look at what we have to show for the actual talent that has been produced by the Performance Center, especially on the male side, where I think the standard is higher for what can be considered an exceptional talent. Um, it's very unimpressive. And the more I think about it, the more I just think that it's kind of just this thing to win a PR message about how effective WWE is at producing its own talents. When if you, you know, peel back the onion a few layers, you see that it's not. And I, it's something that I think is going to become a bigger and bigger factor as currently the company's philosophy is no more indie guys. Everything's going in-house. To their business partners and to mainstream media and to... Um to business partners, to mainstream media, and to, I don't know, to to their executives, I think they view, and, and to investors is what I wanted to get to there, is the, the, the sentences that they publish about the Performance Center in their filings are to, they, they take credit for everyone who's touched, who's set foot in the Performance Center. They take credit for Sami Zayn. They take credit for Kevin Owens and people like that. Nakamura, of course. Um, and, you know, it, I don't know how calculated it is, but, you know, ex- expecting that you're not going to be that aware of what's happening in, in the wrestling world, that these people had many, many years of experience before they were signed with WWE. Uh, they, they, 
gathered their talents well before they they came to WB. Um, but I, w- I would look at the output of the Performance Center, which opened in July 2013. And we've done studies. We did a study. Uh, I did a study with Matt Schroeder on WrestleOnics.com about, I don't know, more than a year ago, um, where we tried to separate the p- what we might call the pure PC projects from people who had, I think the benchmark that I used was the majority of their of their um, pre-main roster experience happening outside of the WWE system. So the moral of the story is who are the, the most successful, and we can just kind of do this intuitively, who are the most successful pure PC projects who had little or no experience in wrestling before they came to WWE? And the people who come to mind for me are, are Bianca Belair. Sasha Banks is a, mis- is a mixed case. She She... At the point that she makes it to the main roster, she's probably got the majority of her experience in the W system. Uh, she worked on the indies for a relatively short amount of time. Um, she worked around here. Saw her several times. Yeah, for sure. Um, Baron Corbin. <laughs> well, look, that, that's my thing is that Corbin is kind of this poster boy, I think, you know, perhaps unfairly for, you know, a WWE Performance Center recruit that is kind of like this boring mid-card guy that is not a superstar. Um, And, but realistically, if you look at like ex-football players that WWE trained to become wrestlers from the performance center days, Baron Corbin is like a best case scenario. When you look at all these guys in NXT that they are introducing on the show, or, you know, you look at the people who they announce in press releases. Oh, we signed this person, six foot four, two hundred eighty pounds, college football player at San Diego State University. Like, like Baron Corbin is that person's best case best case scenario, and I, uh, in, in, in that I think you know is is kind of a little bit harrowing if you're yeah. looking especially at on the, the male results. side. Um, yes, I think on the women's side because, like I said, I meant this. Like, I'm trying. To, I'm, I'm saying this as a. I want to be as fair as possible with it. I just think the standard for being a standout wrestler on the male side is a little bit higher than for women, at least when it comes to getting your foot in the door and to be being what would be considered acceptable tel- on television, on screen performer. Um, yeah. And I, I think the cases we could point to are it, it, it's complicated, right? Because a lot of these people who are on TV today in major roles, um, they came to W a little bit before the performance center started, like Charlotte Flair. She was there for a little bit of FCW time. Big E was there for a little bit of FCW time. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would look at the output of the performance center, especially considering the resources that this company has had and that this company has invested into the performance center, both in terms of just the facility, the overhead, but the, tr- the trainers, the coaches, the staff. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to say this because this will, this will just, you know, I will be patting myself in the back here, but you know, I, I worked multiple times a week uh, at Grapplers Anonymous in Buffalo, New York, as a trainer. We trained people. I would say roughly, I was there, you know, th- about three, two to three days a week from 2014 or 15 to to the very beginning of the pandemic, um, and with comparatively no resources, <laughs> we 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 produced Daniel Garcia and we produced Kevin Blackwood um, with basically no resources. And why, why is this performance center with all of its resources not doing a way better job than what it is? Uh, doesn't, it's, it's, it tells me that there's something wrong there. Something's not right. Well, compare it to OVW. There was um, not the most recent right. 
um, not the most recent Royal Rumble, but the year before that, I remember looking at the participants in the male Royal Rumble. And then the Royal Rumble is a pretty good thing to, to use because it, it, you know, it's 30 people on the roster. Some of them are going to be big stars. Some of them are going to be, you know, semi big stars. Some of them are going to be lower mid card guys. So it kind of gives you an idea of like, who are the people that are on WWE television as a whole? And uh, I forget, it was like breaking down, like who was, where did these people come from? It, you know, where were these people trained and developed before they made their way to WWE? And there were more people from OVW, which WWE hasn't used in almost 20 years, than there were from people from the Performance Center, which has been WWE's own pipeline system over the past eight or nine years. Like, obviously, there was, you know, people like, um, you know, Randy Orton, but there was, you know, Shelton Benjamin and The Miz and John Morrison and Dolph Ziggler and all of these people that were still on WWE television. And there were more of those talents than there were of, like, your Baron Corbin types or your Otis types or people who were trained at the Performance Center. And like all the people that were trained at OBW, you know, like Bobby Lashley, were much bigger stars than the people that were trained at the Performance Center. And it was kind of telling to see how come this, this ter- how come the development from 20 years ago is still having a bigger factor today on the product than the development that should be at this point, you know, providing a majority of your, of your top talent. Right. C- comparatively, OVW, which is a... a s- a scene that they don't want to go back to and that they refer to as, you know, pe- people coming up in this warehouse and being sent down to Louisville. Some sort than- of archaic form that was very ineffective, apparently. Right. But it produced John Cena, Randy Orton, Batista, Brock Lesnar, and so forth. Um, anyway. So anything else to add there before we move on? Uh, if people want to look at this more, um, Adam Berger over at voicesofwrestling.com yes. did a really long examination of the current WWE roster and looking at how many of these people were trained through the performance center and were wrestlers on NXT and kind of, you know, looks at like kind of the different title reigns that they've had. And it does kind of put in perspective, like how little star power, especially on the male side is coming out of that. So that's on voice of wrestling. It's titled, uh, um, stunted development, WWE's unsustainable NIL recruitment strategy, but it takes a long look at that. So if people want to look at that, I recommend it. So we will move on to WB and Peacock. Um, and we were discussing what we're going to talk about uh, today. You had some thoughts about uh, the, the relationship that having guaranteed money from Peacock has, the influence that that has on WB's incentive to produce uh, high-quality events. Yeah, well, it seems like, especially in the wake of this Roman Reigns thing where it you know, it looks like Roman Reigns is not going to be at Hell in a Cell. He didn't have a title match at WrestleMania Backlash. They, um, you know, people have been talking about, oh, well, since the Peacock deal exists, WWE can afford to just mail it in because that money's guaranteed, right? We're far removed from the era of having to sell pay-per-view buys and that they would never produce some of the cards that, that they have now in the pay-per-view era because they were... They, couldn't really afford to have one of those shows bomb. It would be very bad for their business. Yeah. And, and this has been a talking point since the network launched in, yes. in 2014. And in the, in the networks was a similar kind of, you, you started hearing the network because people would subscribe to the network and they wouldn't necessarily cancel if they were uninterested in a pay-per-view each month. Um, I was a believer in that. I would always say as long as they have like a good pay-per-view every few months, I don't think people are going to question if, you know, a special event is poor. And um, but since they moved to Peacock and since now the money is so big from 
Peacock and WWE has been able to capitalize on this desperate race for content that all these streaming providers have that they are now uh, more financially secure in all of these, all of these, you know, their pay-per-view model or their PLE model than ever before. It can allow them to get away with less interesting cards. It can allow them to get away with not having the top stars on each show. It can allow them to get away with not having title matches. Um, And you can look at like WrestleMania backlash and this upcoming Hell in a Cell show and, you can kind of see the evidence to suggest that. But my thinking is that now because they have a major, major, major corporate partner that is paying a billion dollars over a number of years for me, you know, they're paying for the archives, but they're also really paying for these, these, these big events. Yeah. That would to me imply that there's more pressure than ever on WWE to make sure that these events are really important and they're, you know, Peacock is going to be looking at that viewership data and they're going to say, you know, Oh, you know, we didn't have nearly as many people watching WrestleMania backlash as you did WrestleMania, which no one would expect you to, but it's that kind of thinking that makes me, I'm kind of dubious of the notion that that WWE can just go on cruise control and nothing ever matters. I think that happens a lot with WWE in general. I think a lot of people um, mistake their own incompetence for, a uh, savvy business intentional business strategy. Yeah. I, I think it, it's related to, you know, what, what people talk about a lot of times. And we were kind of referring to earlier in, in terms of W's more and more of W's revenue is coming from, not from consumers, not from customers, not from wrestling fans, but are coming from business relationships, including media deals, like the deal with Peacock, like the deal with Saudi Arabia, like the deal with Fox and NBCU for Raw and SmackDown. Um, I, I, I agree with what I think you're saying, Jesse, that, People talk as if, well, they just they don't they don't they don't want to. They hate the fans because they don't really want to have to draw money from the fans. They they just put on shows for their business partners, um, and we can see this this chart that that proves financially, according to my my separation, my categorization of this is a business to business revenue. This is a this is a direct consumer revenue that the increasing majority, and this is uh, with this year and next year estimated, is going to increasingly come from business relationships because their TV rights fees are guaranteed and escalating. The deal with Peacock is probably guaranteed and escalating uh, $200 million a year. And it's probably, a, a, you know, on average, and it's probably a little bit each, a little bit more each year. Um, but I think AW is no different in terms of the percentage, where the percentage of their revenue comes from. Um, their, their biggest business deals with their network that gives them $44 million a year. And, you know, I, I've written in, in my annual reports, you know, I think WB last year probably made in the neighborhood of $80 million in revenue. Uh, maybe about 40 million of that came from Warner media. So that's more than half. And that's not their only business deal. They've got international TV deals in various parts of the world. Um, they've got an action figure deal and, and whatever else. So AEW should be incentivized no differently yet. Um, some will debate, but I, I think, you know, AW has done a competent job, uh, with their creative, uh, but WB has not. And I think their incentive, their, you know, the, the incentives dictated by their revenue sources are not significantly different. Well, and, and we know, um, from reports and such that WWE's major, you know, business to business partners like NBC universal and Fox, they do request things from WWE. They leverage things. They want to make sure that the biggest stars are on their programming. They want to have certain, they'll pitch certain ideas 
you know, we've heard that the USA over the years has pitched certain ideas that they'd like WWE to do. We know for seven title. Yeah, we've had plenty of reports about Fox saying we want this star on our show. We want this on that. So and WWE is, you know, working to satisfy them because, as you mentioned, they're huge business partners. We know that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia requests, you know, they want each of their shows to be big and have special match on them because they're paying, you know, a lot of money and they want to see that result. And WWE accommodates them. I don't think that um, I don't understand why it would be any different where Peacock was paying WWE a large sum of money wouldn't want to be like, yeah, we want to make sure that, you know, you're giving max effort to these shows and you're not just going on cruise control and producing the, you know, these C-level pay-per-views events when we're paying you X amount of dollars to deliver. I, I don't I don't think that would be any different than, than what they have currently with, with Raw and SmackDown and the Saudi Arabia deal. Yeah. What, what we hear a lot in, in every earnings call is Nick Khan and or Stephanie McMahon talk about, they don't tell us the number of viewers who are watching on average a WWE premium live event on Peacock, but they do tell us the percentage difference versus the prior year or two to, to, to tell us that, or to tell investors that look, we're, we're, we're really delivering for our partner and, and the reach that Peacock has, which is far greater than what the W network had. uh, That's causing more people to watch these events, which is really good for us in, in in a number of ways, including it, increases the number of people who are seeing all the all those commercials all the snicker commercials uh, and things like that during during the events um the thing about being on peacock is that it's a new service just this is a very similar story to, to the early days of the network is that the network numbers would always be up and it's it and there's this it's hard to to read you know this is a new service that is still acquiring uh customers it's still traveling towards this saturation point um and we don't know exactly when that's going to end you know in for the w network it, it ended in about 2018 for netflix that ended this year um so the it will appear you know the the, the, the fact that you ha- you're a part of a new product is going to make it really easy to appear that you're growing for a while eventually though that's going to normalize and, you know, I mean, I, I think the biggest reason why WrestleMania viewership was up this year versus last year uh, may or may not be due to genuine interest in, in the event. But the biggest reason is that there's, a, you know, Peacock was in more homes this year than last year. The, the biggest reason why those year over year deltas are going to continue for at least a while to be bigger this year than last year is because Peacock is going to, is going to be in more homes on a year over year comparison for probably a couple more years. Uh, so they, they have that to say, I mean, eventually, you know, if, if there's a time where there's an event that is not showing a year over year positive difference, first of all, though, he's not going to tell us about that because they're being selective about the information that they're sharing with us about the Peacock viewership. Um, but Peacock's going to be aware of that and W's going to be aware of that. So there should be an incentive to continue to grow viewership because if they're not, if these events are not delivering strong viewership, yeah, W's not, or, you know, NBC universal or whatever the potential streaming partner is, whoever the, the potential distribution partner is for these events, uh, they're only valuable because they are highly viewed, even though we do live in this complicated media environment where viewership and consumer behavior is fragmented all over the place. Uh, the reason why WCTV rights fees are valuable, the reason why 
PLE rights are valuable is because they are highly viewed. There is also the possibility that when the Peacock deal expires, WWE um, signs up, gets a deal with a bigger streaming network that is in, you know, considerably more homes than Peacock. I don't know if it's Netflix or Amazon yeah. Prime or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you could see that would be a way to almost maintain the consistent growth uh, if they're going to be in way more homes. You know, Peacock is in X amount of homes. Netflix is in three times as many more of that as that. Obviously, that would lead to some kind of natural growth on that end. I was going to ask you, I, as a fan, feel like I have noticed that WWE has increased the amount of video packages and different things on these these events into me, uh, the pacing of these shows has been awful. I don't know if that is a WWE choice because that is how they want to tell their stories or they are kind of trying to extend the shows, make them a little bit longer, help their viewership data by showing that, you know, our, you know, we, people watch X amount of minutes of, of WWE content on Peacock. Do you feel like that has anything to do like the, 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 um, the, really the increase in like every match now has like a full five minute recap video package instead of just the major matches has like an impact on like the um, they're trying to kind of game the viewership data by making these events longer than they maybe have any justification to be. The, the information that they're sharing with us is viewership. What does that mean? I, I'm, I'm guessing it's viewership. I'm hoping that it's viewership in, in the way that the TV ratings that we talk about uh, I, I hope it's that kind of measurement. What is that? What do I mean by that? Average viewership throughout the duration of the telecast. Um, but it could be just the number of people who watch some portion of it. I don't know. Um, if, if I'm Peacock, you know, what measure do I want to use to tell me whether or not, or to, or to what degree, having these events on my platform is really valuable? Watch time, I guess. Um, we're streaming this on YouTube right now, and watch time is important that's why this this is uh, a we're now into well over an hour here um but the, the and, and the longer it is there's more um more ad space to 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 run in between everything uh so yeah I, but i but i would agree with you that these shows have a lot of stuff that happens in between them i don't think there should be a viscera spot uh but uh yeah, there's a lot of ads, and uh, the the and the longer it is, the more ad units that there probably are to sell. Um, the more, uh, and they've not just added uh, a lot of ads and a lot of video packages, but these integrations too. That I, from my my perspective as a viewer, uh, just make everything feel more more corporate and inauthentic. I'm talking about the zombies and things like that. Uh, uh, Stephanie McMahon thinks that fans love that stuff. She said she said so. Yes, and maybe they do. I don't. Maybe I'm just. God, Lord knows there's people on Twitter that, that don't care uh, about yeah. all, the, all the things in that the, I thought was tasteful. But. The Variety article. that, Or no, not Variety. It was, it was Deadline. Deadline. The, Should we just the deadline. that? There's the Deadline article. Yes. Um, in, in it, she was quoted as – she referenced the zombie, you know, Miz being eaten by zombies. Something that I saw even by the most ardent of WWE supporters on social media. Uh, totally panning. And uh, – Stephanie McMahon described it as great, which I'm sure for WWE's investors, it was great because they got like, a, I think like a million dollars to do it. Uh, um, so, so let's, let's jump to this, this uh, article from deadline because there's upfronts happening both for Warner brothers discovery and for NBC universal and for Fox, the, the biggest wrestling partners that there are uh, coming up 
this week, I believe. Um, so Deadline had this article with uh, an interview from Stephanie McMahon that will I, I will read some excerpts from here. Uh, the and I I love that you can always uh, tell how much these people know about wrestling who are writing this article based on the WWE, the World Wrestling Entertainment, uh, rather than just. WWE. I'll say that is almost definitely an editor decision, not necessarily the person writing the article. You think so? The headline for sure is an editor's decision. Sure. Uh, uh, maybe you make up. Maybe they made it up and the editor liked it. But like the WWE poised jump off the top rope. I know how editors, news editors' brains work, and that is something that would appeal to them. That yes. is is as they say, cringe for for you or I. Yes. So anyway, uh, the, so some excerpts from the article. The WWE is set to show off its media moves on Monday at both the NBC Universal and Fox Upfront presentation. So yes, it is tomorrow as we as we're speaking today. At NBCU's presentation to advertisers at Radio City Music Hall on Monday morning, uh, WWE Raw Women's Champion Bianca Belair and WWE Superstar The Miz are both slated to speak at Fox's afternoon event at Skylight on Vezzi Universal slash WWE Champion Roman Reigns. And WWE superstar Charlotte Flair will have uh, will be two of the five Fox Sports figures in attendance. Uh, the activity follows the company's strong quarterly financial report earlier this month, which showed twenty a twenty seven percent upswing in total revenue as live events returned after the worst of the coronavirus pandemic. The WWE's twenty twenty one licensing deal with Peacock, which integrated programming from the standalone WWE Network into NBCU's service is showing signs of traction while NBCU and parent Comcast keep most of the data close to the vest. WWE execs said the 38th edition of the flagship WrestleMania event last month saw a 61% increase in viewership compared to, to 2021 and was Peacock's second most watched live event after the Super Bowl. During WrestleMania weekend, one third of all Peacock accounts, which would be more than 9 million based on Comcast's latest tally of 28 million overall, Watch W content. W Chief Brand Officer Stephanie McMahon told Deadline in an interview that the company's trademark blend of sports and entertainment offers distinct advantages. It really is both, she said. It's like athletic theater. It's the story. That's why you care. You're swept up in the storylines. We can script the buzzer beater moments. We can script the Hail Marys. We have a leg up on sports. You may object to what we do, but you're never going to be bored. Feel free to interrupt me. Um, NBCU has shifted uh, the, the, the WWE to its sports division as far as sales, which I thought was an interesting mention. Uh, continuing to read from the article, a move that gave it extra incentive to promote WrestleMania during last February's Super Bowl. Uh, Stephanie has quoted, whenever you watch a game, it's too cluttered. I guess she's referring to other sports games. Uh, she continues, WWE is able to deliver differently. Uh, Deadline writes, she slated a partnership with Netflix for 2021 for the 2021 movie release of Army of the Dead. That's the Batista movie. Uh, She says, we had zombies surrounding the ring in a twist on on what is known as a lumberjack match in which wrestlers surround the ring on the outside. Yes, we know what a lumberjack match is. She, uh, She says, zombies were walking around randomly. It was pretty great, she said. Similar stunts have been done for Pizza Hut and Mike's Hard Lemonade, sometimes even trending on social media. Unlike pro sports leagues, the WWE is structured in a way that favors streamlined deal-making with sponsors, McMahon said. No players' unions, team owners, stadium authorities, or agents needing to sign off on activations. Instead, a one-stop shop available for creative executions. We own all the IP, she said. 
when brands deal with us, they just deal with us. We create that's a very relevant together. That's a very relevant piece in this. I think the article is like really disappointing in that it's kind of just a fluff piece with the Stephanie McMahon talking points in it. But I do think it's pretty relevant and it is a as as uh as uh, distasteful as it can be that WWE has the authority to make all of these decisions on behalf of all of its talent um, and all of its supposed independent contractors that it, it has uh, under its peer view. Um, it is, you know, convincing if you're an advertiser, it's like, oh, we don't have to deal with all of the various things. We don't have to deal with 32 different NFL owners. We don't have to deal with individual players. We don't have to deal with individual teams and fan bases and all that. Everything is WWE. So if you sign a deal with, us, you want to be a sponsor for us, you can get whatever you want out of it. If you want Roman Reigns to pitch your hard cider, Roman Reigns is doing that, is doing a hard cider commercial and, you know, you don't have to pay him extra or anything like that. It is a very convincing, that aspect of it is very convincing if you're like an advertiser, right? Yes. Um, yeah. It, it, it stood right out to me as soon as I read it that, you know, these are independent contractors who are, in my view, clearly misclassified and should be employees. They exude it. It's it's being framed as a strength of what you're able to offer business partners uh, when you're kind of giving it away that you exude pretty significant control over these people who are classified as independent contractors. When exuding that kind of control over them is the very thing that makes them misclassified. Um, but no, nobody wants to talk about that. Um, AEW wrestlers are probably misclassified too, by the way. I, I don't want to just beat up WWE for this. And from a corporate perspective, though, do you think that is that is that really what they care about, or do they care about how can we make the deal that's best advantageous, advantageous to us? And I think that's certainly that's, they want to ex- exploit <laughs> as, as as much value as they can. Uh, I think it's you know what's interesting about this this article to me is earlier when. We talk about classifying. It's it's an article basically based around the concept, for the most part, of WWE being classified as sports and how the WWE product is better than sports product and why it's better. You know, it's more exciting and it's more dramatic and it's better for sponsors and all that. And so you have that, and you have Stephanie saying we can script the buzzer beater moments and all of these kind of things. We can we control all of this. And in the article, kind of makes the its own case for the absurdity of classifying WWE as sports. Uh, and the excitement about the excitement from sports is that it's not scripted, and that literally anything can happen because it's not scripted. And if you philosophically think about it, WWE, a scripted uh, piece of content, has a more limited amount of things that can happen because it is scripted and because it is exerted control, and it it loses the element of random drama that makes sports so compelling for so many people. And so in, in, in the article itself, it really highlights the own absurdity of thinking of WWE as sports. And in turn, the kind of long-term appeal it will have to its fan base, as opposed to sports, which again, comes with that element of randomness that make athletic contests, you know, exciting to watch because it takes place in reality as opposed to a scripted event. So the, 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 this is an attractive argument to me, but like, so the th- what happens in WWE, the possibilities of things that could happen in WWE are more limited because it's predetermined. Because why? Right. Tell me more. I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna watch. I'm wearing the uh, Celtics shirt tonight. Celtics have their Game yes. Seven playoff game in a few hours against the Milwaukee Bucks. Anything can happen in that game. 
obviously they're going to play basketball. Some guys are going to make some shots. Some guys are going to miss some shots. Some guys are going to be called for a foul. But, but, but I right. grew up watching uh, WF and Vince McMahon told me that anything can happen in the world wrestling. <laughs> right, 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 right. But the, the interest in that game in like in any sporting event is that we don't know. We have, we don't really know who's going to win. We don't know how they're going to win. We only know the parameters of the game. WWE. So, so, and that is what makes sports so interesting is why I'm sure many neutral basketball fans will be tuning into both game sevens in the NBA uh, tonight or this afternoon and this evening, because there's two is because we don't know what's going to happen. We have somewhat of a passing, maybe we might have a passing interest in, in one of the teams or whatnot, but there's randomness because we don't know what's going to happen as opposed to WWE. We do know what's going to happen. Most of the time we can know exactly what's going to happen if you're a seasoned fan. But the idea element of randomness and the idea that there's no spirit of competition really, and, and it's all being controlled really by one person in Vince McMahon, and basically whatever he decides is going to happen is going to happen, doesn't make it as appealing to a lot of people as sports. It might make it as appealing to it as scripted dramas or scripted comedies or anything like that or a movie, but it doesn't have that element of sports that make, I think, sports really fascinating for a lot of people at that level. So, and I think um, something else. I've never thought about this before. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of just, I was kind of just inspired when I was thinking about this, when you were kind of recapping the article I was thinking about, you know what, this doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. So I haven't thought about that. I actually haven't thought that much about this kind of argument. I'm just make kind of making it right now. I guess I, I think that you can predict that, you know, Roman Reigns is going to beat Brock Lesnar, but I think it's more, maybe it's, it's, it's more limited in that it's limited to the framework in which Vince McMahon is willing to present his product. Um, and that, for me as a viewer, before we talk about economic effects, that to me makes it quite limited. Um, and that, for me, is why watching certain W events over the years where I anticipated that the crowd would be quite hostile to W's present intentional presentation of what they were trying to accomplish. Those events have been the most interesting to me because that's a real competition, <laughs> I guess. Um, uh, I don't, I don't know if that, that s- supports you, what you were saying or not, Jesse. Um, I just so. think miscla- I think it's really misclassifying WWE content. Like I think the whole argument that like we're sports, but we're better because we control the outcomes is a kind of reductive argument. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense because if you can control the outcomes, then you're losing this massive element of what makes sports interesting in that sense that nobody really knows what's going to happen. I agree in the sense that um, wrestling uh, has an element of randomness to it that anything can happen, right? The Miz could lose a match because he got pinned by the other guy's finisher move or he could lose the match because he was eaten by zombies, right? Literally anything can happen, right? But I think Stephanie trying to call you right now. Yeah, I know. I'm getting the call. <laughs> um, but I, I think the, one of the reasons why she wants to talk about sports here, and I think in a different era, maybe 10 years ago, they wouldn't want to talk about sports at all. Uh, they want to talk about sports now because now the media economy has decided that live sports are the valuable thing. And, you know, if you're not live sports, we're not as sure that you're valuable. So I think I think this company for a long, long time uh, has tried to veer itself away from sports to be a little kind of open to be open about the fact that, yes, we are predetermined. We're entertainment. I think they have felt insecure about uh, 
criticisms and, and, and becoming sort of a, a stigma because you're fake. It's all scripted. Uh, so, so rather than try to present themselves as sport that people can call illegitimate, they have tried to present themselves as something, well, we're no different than movies or, or film. Uh, but now the world has decided that live sports are super valuable, so they want to have it both ways. Um, it's something that's driven by you know, media value, something that's driven by corporate values and not driven by any kind of logic or consistency. Um, yeah. And that's not getting into how many, how many memorable buzzer-beating moments do you remember WWE putting together in the last five years? It's, it's every two count. It's every near fall. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, but the idea, so we're not even, I don't even touch on like the idea that like, okay, they can script these things. Is it going to be any good? Um, I, I don't, I would caution people to not look at the raw hour by hour rating trend where the end of the show somehow always does bad compared to the beginning of the show. And what does that say about the scripting of, of endings that people are excited about? Um, I want to say uh, Justin Robbins with a super chat. He said, just wanted to say thanks for doing these po- podcasts. Um, if people missed it, who came in later, Brandon said that, um, all super chats today are going to be the, the funds from those are going to be donated to a Buffalo based, um, yes. Buffalo uh, community fridge. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to send some money. I'm going to send all of your money and then all of your money. Also, f- I'm going to match all, all the money that you give in super chats today and send it to Buffalo community fridge. Mm-hmm. So thanks for your super chats today. Yeah. If anyone has any super chats, um, as we kind of wind, wind down the show here, uh, feel free to get them in they're going to a good cause and you're going to make Brandon donate a lot of money, which is great. Yeah. I, I, I hope we're winding it down. We've got a few more things to hit here. I just, I just want to mention too some of these people who are going to appear at the upfronts. You want to talk about titles and people being given opportunities to get over, but the names that are mentioned here are the real champions, right? Especially in, in, a, in a world that's dominated by business, business revenue. Um, the Miz, Bianca Belair, Charlotte Flair, Roman Reigns. Those are the people who they value as not just being champions, but being they're willing to present these people to business partners who make the most, most important economic decisions uh, for their business. Um, so we can finally move on here. Uh, I, just, I just wanted to touch on this is conspicuous and interesting that that AEW uh, we've got to, they're going to be on carpool karaoke on Apple TV plus uh, according to Apple TV Plus's Twitter. Uh, Carpool Karaoke is streaming on May 27th on Apple TV+. Plus. There's a segment here where CM Punk, Brian Danielson, Britt Baker, and Christian are, are part of this, uh, you know, with many other celebrities and stars here. Uh, just to tie this into something I think we talked about last week where Britt Baker and Adam Kohler are appearing or did appear last week on an episode of Bar Rescue on Paramount. Um, does this mean anything? Maybe not. But uh, interesting to see AW stars, AW talent appearing in worlds that are not controlled by the Warner Brothers Discovery Universe. Apple TV Plus is obviously it's an Apple property. Uh, Paramount Network is a Paramount company, the form of Viacom CBS. Um, I don't know what it means, but but it's it's most of the time this the the AEW talent that we've seen appear elsewhere like chris jericho on foodies like cody rhodes on the go big show they've been appearing within their tv networks universe and this is people you know experiment appearing outside maybe this means something about potential business relationships that may be discussed in the future um like for instance i i it's been emerging to me that it, it would might be a good idea for and maybe this is something that will happen in, in, in AEW's next round of TV contracts. That may, maybe the the best thing for them to do is to deal AEW Dynamite, their clearly number one show, put that 
keep that on on linear TV. Maybe that stays on TBS, whatever. Uh, and and but maybe the best way to get value, both in terms of money and in terms of reach, is to deal AW Rampage, which is clearly to me their number two show. Uh, maybe to deal that to streaming. So you keep Dynamite on this this form of media that continues to be the highest reach form of media. TBS is in about 80 million homes. There's about 120 million homes, something like that in the United States. So about 120 is your, your, your total pool of possible homes to be in. You can be in 80 million of them with TBS or TNT. Uh, but then there's a lot of homes that don't have access to traditional TV and are never going to get access to, to traditional TV. Maybe it makes sense to deal Rampage to a streaming major streaming platforms such as, who knows, Apple TV, Hulu, HBO Max, Netflix, Amazon Prime. Um, maybe that makes sense. And what appears to be happening in, in the sports media environment is you got NHL, for example, making a deal with ESPN+. Plus. Uh, that was their A package. But they're getting more from ESPN than, they, than any of the NHL is from Turner. Yes, it is the B package, but I think part of the reason why that's a even bigger deal uh, monetarily is because of the fact that it's going to streaming. Because it's on streaming, the reach is lower. The potential size of the audience is smaller. Therefore, streaming appears to be paying more than they would if they were cable. Um, we can What you're giving a wrestling company or a sports league is not just money, but it's a partnership. We're working together. You're giving them access to a fan base. Um, so if you're, we're putting you on ESPN plus, we're only putting you in, I was just looking at the numbers the other day, like 30 million homes, right? We're putting you on Peacock. You're, you're, we're putting you in like 20 million homes. So we're giving you less reach. Maybe to offset that, we have to give you more money. And then this would be good for AW too, because then they could live with their big program on the big reach platform, traditional cable, and they could reach the non-cable homes being on streaming, maybe getting paid a little bit more for it than they would if they were putting that Rampage show on cable. And the, the, the lesson Nick Khan in 2018 has taught us that, hey, if you sell one of your properties to one company and another of your properties to another company, you make more money than you would selling those two properties together. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, Jesse. Um, yeah, I do. A real quick M uh, MJG with a very generous $20. MJ from MJ. Uh, it says also AW and WWE are very different businesses and oh probably God. need Thank to you, be compared MJ. less. Just, just my two cents. Well, it's actually your $20, not your two cents, but, uh, uh, but you know, thank you for the donation. Uh, I think they are different, but from an economic sense, they're kind of still playing the same game. They're, they're all, it should, it, it should be disclosed that MJ from NJ, uh, does have, uh, positions in W stock, uh, sounding very much like a WWE investor here. Um, I've, 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 I've talked to one analyst a while ago who, who I had a very similar conversation with, and he was like, I, I, just, I just don't think it's a wrestling company. It's like, it's, you, you, can, you can call it whatever you want. Uh, at the end they of the day, a, a car is a car. Uh, you, know, you can call it a, a truck, an SUV. They're both, they're both in the business of automotive uh, vehicles. They don't think WWE is a wrestling company. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's a media uh, company. It's a, you know. Yeah, in regards to putting a show on a streaming network, um, but thank you. I'm, sure, I'm sure it's been discussed. I don't know if it has been discussed on WrestleNomics, but I'm sure you're very aware, Brandon, of the rise of Formula One racing in popularity yes, in the United yes. States. And so Formula One has accomplished something that a lot of people thought would be very 
almost impossible to do, which is to get Americans to care about a decisively un-American sport, which is Formula One racing, which is very popular in many parts of the world, but historically not super popular in the United States, um, which has always ref- you know, preferred NASCAR uh, as, it, as its uh, chosen form of racing. But Formula One had a Netflix documentary series, a kind of pseudo documentary as a documentary i've actually never seen drive it, so to survive you're talking yeah i don't want to i don't want to comment too much on it but i've been told it's kind of it's a documentary but some stuff is obviously played up for you know cameras to create extra drama and interest which i, I, I haven't seen an episode of it either but it's it's all the rage in sports media it's it's this example of how you can grow a fan base by having this apparently great uh documentary series that People who have no otherwise interest in your sport, they get really into your series. And not only do they do that, but a lot of them end up watching races or contributing to your racing business. Correct. The big money that F1 has found is not that a lot of people watch this, the series on Netflix. It is that those people are tuning into like the Miami Grand Prix from last week, I think, which I think beat NASCAR in 18 to 49, although that came with the caveat that I think the, the F1 race was on ABC and NASCAR was on FS1. It's obviously a massive difference in, in the number of homes it's in, but it was seen as a massive success in a growing sports entity and property. We've seen um, English Premier League soccer kind of uh, have similar kind of success, not starting out on streaming, but kind of being able to work its way into becoming a more significant uh player in American sports television rights. And, but, but to get back to kind of AEW or, or maybe, or even WWE perhaps going this route um, and always WWE already has, because they have, they have all the their content is on Peacock. Theoretically, anyone could watch them, but is like, but for AEW, you take rampage, you dump it on um, a, a streaming service. Maybe it's HBO max. Maybe it's Netflix. Maybe it's Amazon prime. Maybe it's a smaller one. But you put it on that and you hope that you kind of get a similar growth where people are into to Rampage and they're watching Rampage each week. But that's leading to more people getting interested in the personalities on Rampage, interested in the matches that are being promoted on Rampage. And those people start tuning in to Dynamite on Wednesday. And I think a lot of people are going to try that strategy across a broad spectrum of, of entertainment. It's not just going to be wrestling, but everyone's going to be trying to copy that F1 uh, idea. Yeah. Um we haven't discussed it on WrestleNomics up to this point. Um, Roads to the Top is clearly being replaced with something. I don't think it has a title yet, but it's... Uh, yeah, I think they trademarked a bunch of like potential titles, and they were all like... I think one of them was like on the ropes, like AEW on the ropes. And I think it was... I forget, it might have been Brian Alvarez, but they said, like, why would, I would not call the show AEW on the ropes. But they, <laughs> they trademarked a bunch of like generic uh, wrestling title names for... Uh, uh, for the show, but yes, they are. Yeah, so you're talking about the the, the kind of back behind the scenes drama that they're they're scripting. Yeah, yeah. so it, it looks like Rose the Top is going to be replaced with something, and you know, AEW, like many other sports properties, are looking for their own documentary series that will hopefully be a hit and will drive people to watch their traditional core content. Uh, kind, of like, you, kind of like Total Divas, right? And when you can script the buzzer beaters, think about how. Uh, how valuable that can be. And I, I will, look, um, we've seen this at both AEW and WWE. People respond really well to the, you know, personal features that, that run on, on those programmings. People seem to really like 
um, when they find out things about these people's lives and they tell their personal stories and it makes them more invested in their characters. I, I, I don't see, I could see, a, a, you know, it really working. I could see a behind the scenes show where you look at all these personalities and all of these people involved in the wacky world of professional wrestling leading towards um, a successful integration of new fans into the product. I think Total Divas did achieve some success in, in, in turning some women who, especially specifically women viewers who maybe were never wrestling fans into people who at least knew who these wrestlers were and were started to kind of tune into WWE programming. I think you can identify some shifts in the demographics of who was watching WWE programming over yes. the years to, and see that that was something that happened. Even my mom watched Troll Divas. She was, uh, I think she knows who Brian Danielson is now. Um, yeah. But I, I think Roads to the Top was not a success. It was a media, it did fine in the ratings, didn't do terribly, didn't, didn't do great. But I think, um, and I know Cody was probably being booed well before that, but I don't think it did either Cody or Brandy any favors in terms of becoming well-liked. Um, well, Cody's biggest problem in a lot of ways was people always seeing him as this typical WWE wrestler and rose to the top from like a thematically how it was presented was very similar to the WWE reality shows like Total Divas. And so that probably didn't help. Um, I think if you're script, you're doing this thing where you're kind of looking at the whole roster or maybe looking at a large percentage of the roster and you're backstage and you're talking to these talents and AW is definitely not afraid to, I think, pull back the curtain and show like Tony Khan making decisions and stuff like that. They've been pretty honest um, compared to wrestling companies historically on showing how um, that this is a work and that this is, you know, uh, not real and this is scripted that. I think it could become presented in a way that's not like this kitschy reality show aimed at, you know, people who are watching E or people who are watching, you know, TBS. It could be something more dramatic and, and more darker kind of uh, in that kind of way. Um, we do have a super chat. Tim B says, can you come up with a metric for AEW conversion of TV viewers to pay-per-view buyers and also relative to pre-network WWE network conversion of TV to pay-per-view buyers? Um, um Thank you, Tim. It, it would be difficult because the TV audience, there's there's such a a headwind in the further we go towards the present and, and later into the future, the more of the headwind that we're going to have against attaining linear TV viewership. So if we go back to 2014, um, perhaps W was more popular at that time, but also it's more it's harder to capture viewership. I, I, I don't I don't think I'm just making excuses for W here. Um, so I, I guess I would expect if we just I can do a little bit of rough math off the top of my head, right? Like the AEW is doing 900,000. They've been doing a little bit under 900,000 total viewers lately for Dynamite. Maybe they do a million when they were doing a million before the NBA playoffs really started. Um, they're doing at their peak, they did about 205,000 pay-per-view buys worldwide. You can probably assume that about 70% of that was domestic. Um, so that's some portion. I don't know. Now I'd have to get a calculator out. Anyway, I would imagine that the, if you wanted to, to articulate pay-per-view buys as a percentage of total viewership, which I think is what Tim's getting at, um, I would expect that the percentage is higher for AEW than it was for WWE. But that's distorted, I think, by the change in consumer behavior across those, you know, what is that, eight years or so. Um, 
but I, I, I see what you're getting at there. Well, and people's cons- it's, it's so much easier now to maybe keep up with a product without watching weekly and then become invested in the pay-per-views as opposed to in the past, the pre-social media, pre-YouTube era, where you have a, a lot of those people that purchased that pay-per-view um, were not weekly dynamite viewers. I feel kind of confident in saying that many of them were, in fact, probably a majority of them were, but there were a lot of people who maybe watch dynamite once a month, maybe keep up on social media, keep up on podcasts or whatever. But since there's only four pay-per-view events a year, they'll plunk down the, the, the 50 bucks and they, they know the talents and they know the storylines, but they're not watching, you know, religiously every week. Uh, perhaps it was harder in previous generations where there was less access to recaps and things like that for people to feel like they had to watch. Um, Obviously, if you compare like, you know, WCW or, or WWF, even in the Attitude Era, you know, if they're doing, four, I don't know, I don't know, I can't think of the numbers off the head. Say they're doing four or five million viewers per per week in America, and they're doing three hundred thousand, three hundred fifty thousand pay per view buys for for you know kind of a regular pay per view show. That obviously would be they're, a they're way- doing under under two hundred at the end, I believe. At the end, I'm thinking like the for peak, BK. like where you just have millions and millions and millions of viewers every week. And you're doing, and during a time where everyone considers a huge success for business, those conversion rates, I'm sure, would be lower than um, what AEW is doing now. But I think the way people follow the product is very different, and it's hard to kind of capture that. Um, and internationally, the you know, the product is uh, is different, as you mentioned, as far as ability to access people internationally and. Kind and of I would thing. I would bet that the pay per view viewership, if I don't know if if the, if the data is even being collected by anybody, I imagine it is at least digitally. I would imagine that that the pay per view viewership is younger than the TV viewership. So like the median age, right? Like median age of Dynamite is like late forties, maybe fifty. Um, I would guess, especially when we're counting, especially when now that we're we're selling pay per view on digital platforms like uh, Fight and BR. Yeah. Uh, Bleacher Report, um, I would imagine that that's a younger audience in terms of a median age. Why? Because on some of the most highly watched episodes of Dynamite or Rampage, take the CM Punk episode, uh, the, the, the portion of viewers 18 to 34 is enormous relative to what it is normally. Uh, younger people are much more selective with their traditional TV viewership than older people right it's the general philosophy of why people are coveting the 18 to 49 generation uh for for advertising because that is the group of people that people assume have a disposable income and b can be more impressionable and less um influenced yeah yeah yeah. yes they can be influenced they can be manipulated to buying products and things in a way that older people may not be they may be set in their ways um we can argue about whether that's really true or not uh but that is the point is that younger people are kind of the swing vote. I think, I mean, when it comes to like creating new fans and stuff like that, I've, I've been a big believer, especially in AEW's case is you've got to be able to um, create new fans who are teenagers or children. I think that is, I think you're, you're kind of looking at diminishing returns. If you're focusing just on laps fans or people who are converting to existing WWE fans, I think your long-term potential is, you know, creating a new generation of fans who identify with the AEW product as their primary form of professional wrestling. And I, I would speculate that one of the main ways to do that is not even through television or YouTube clips, but through things like video games or action figures. Um, I think that that's been true for a long time with WWE. 
that's clear video game console game is something that they're working on um, but yeah I, th- I think i think we're all done unless you have anything more to add jesse uh i don't have anything more to add i can plug some stuff sure go ahead uh, please do yeah um the number one thing i want to plug which is uh the Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast on YouTube, which is my podcast with my co-host, uh, Jason Umpresser. Um, two weeks ago, we did an interview with a casual fan. Yes. Uh, I scoured the globe trying to find this very elusive um, casual fan. I found him. I stumbled across him in Manchuria. He was naked and uh, bathing under a waterfall. Um, but no, I, I, I talked to somebody who is a casual fan in that they don't watch regularly in that they purchased AEW Revolution, which was their first pay-per-view purchase since, I think, they said WrestleMania 7. And uh, yeah, Brandon has the link now. Yes. But um, I just got a chance to talk to him and just ask him what he thought about wrestling product, what gets him excited about uh, wrestling. And I thought it was really enlightening for a lot of different reasons because so many times we hear the casual fan that likes this, the casual fan dislikes that. And eventually we kind of... Um, got into it oh you want to play the clip well i'm not, I'm not gonna be able to play it okay, but, okay um, yeah that's fine but yeah there there's a video of just uh what is this like about four minutes of yeah. uh of of some of the really strong points that he makes i have watched this i, I found it uh enjoyable yes uh, and i think he makes uh, a strong point the general lesson is that the casual fan is way more intelligent and um ability to to understand things than than i think a lot of times there are so I, I, I would recommend people check that out. And uh, and Jason Opresser, uh has, has written plenty of articles uh, on WrestleNomics.com. So it's definitely somebody who we're yes, familiar it's, with. Yes, it's, it's, we're, we're, WrestleNomic, we're a WrestleNomics adjacent podcast yes. in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, and just follow me on Twitter. I write for Wrestling Inc. I write for VoicesOfWrestling.com. I had an article on Voice of Wrestling that came out earlier this week where I talked about the use of cooldown matches on pay-per-view shows and kind of the, why companies tend to do them, the benefits and the the negatives of them. And I kind of make the argument that I feel like they're very unnecessary and kind of are used as ways to kind of the mask this spot. Do you, do you know it as the viscera spot? Um, I don't, I understand what you mean by yes. saying that. Um, viscera had the second to last match on many pay-per-views in the mid two thousands or so. Uh, Golo and I were discussing last week, whether, uh, whether that is a, as a, as a known term in the glossary outside of independent wrestling, where I've, I've heard that a lot in independent wrestling, where the viscera know, spot is the, the, the cool spot. Yes. Well, now you'll see like, because the way they're structured, especially in AEW is really big on this because AEW kind of will have like four really, really, really important matches on the pay-per-view. And then like four or five lesser important matches. And they kind of go like big match, less important match, big match, less important match, big match, less important match. Um, and there's all sorts of different strategies to that. And I think that it's just really unnecessary. I, I, I kind of like the, the, the Baron Corbin, uh, the Baron Corbin, Riddick um, Moss, Riddick Moss, Matt, Madcap Moss match. Yes. Um, excuse me. Was so unnecessary to watch. Um, but it was the classic cooldown match. And it's like the crowd was hot after the Ronda Rousey Charlotte match. Then they get out of it and then they get hot for the main event. And it's like, we don't need this match happening now. We need it back then and then throw in the video packages and the advertisements. And uh, I got to get to work on Monday. I don't, I don't want to be up all night watching this, this WrestleMania backlash show. And, and uh, maybe this is just me over uh, emphasizing my, I, you know, I, I grew up in my teen years as a tape trader who became really fascinated with Japanese wrestling. But, you know, th- this 
cooldown match right before the main event has never been a thing in, in Japanese wrestling, as far as I know. It's certainly not something that's done to this day in New Japan or, or in its strongest years in the late 2010s. Uh, you had many Wrestle Kingdom events, for example, that have amazing matches that were second to last, whether it was a lot of, you know, a lot of the, uh, the Nakamura and AJ Styles match, Nakamura and Kota Ibushi match. Oh, we didn't talk about Kota Ibushi this week, but no, maybe we will next week. Um, yeah, it's uh, maybe it's just a cultural difference. I'm, I, I, I'm skeptical of that idea, though. Yeah, like I, I, um, New Japan certainly doesn't do it. Um, it's more just it's more of an idea behind what can be a cooldown match and what can't be. Like I, AEW's Revolution is is an example I kind of get into where they have the, um, the the dog collar match, which was obviously one of the bigger matches on the show. Then they do the Britt Baker Thunder Rosa match, which just didn't have the kind of heat I think I wanted to have it, and it was very long. Um, and it was definitely like came across like kind of as a cool down match that the crowd wasn't super into. And I don't think benefited either of those performers. Then they did the, the John Moxley, Brian Danielson match, which again was one of the bigger matches on the show when the crowd gets hot again. Yeah. And then after that, they have the main event, but in between the main event, they have what I would consider another cool down match. But that match is the Darby Allen sting, Matt Hardy versus Andrade and private party kind of match. Um, which is a cooldown match and that's far less importance and far less interest than the previous matches. But because it's this kind of short, wild brawl, the crowd's still hot, the crowd's still into it. And so it's almost like if you want to break up your show so you're not just backloading it with all your biggest matches, you got to be kind of smart with where you put these matches on each card and you want to make sure that you can have a cooldown match that is just different. It just has to be different than maybe a big singles match. I, I mean, I, um, I just don't, I just don't, by the idea that there are there's any evidence to support that the cooldown match has worked, like I, that the I, crowd I, the crowd would be gassed by the end. I agree, um, and that's kind of my point. Is in the sense that the cooldown match is done as a way to like masquerade the fact that the crowd might not be that interested in your main event. In that, if you are a real main eventer, your task should be. I'm the biggest star in the company. The crowd needs to care about me and my match the most. That's why you're in that spot. That's why you're the main eventer. And I think by being like, well, we have to handicap it by making sure we have this intentionally bad or boring match right before. So the crowd has a chance to recover and get, you know, when they see uh, mediocrity in the, in the main event, they'll think it's better because they're not coming off of a high. It's, I think it's kind of a, a, a telling strategy that a company, if you just had a bunch of awesome hot matches, you wouldn't have to have like an intentionally bad match to kind of game the system so that the crowd is, is, is more open to your main event being good. I guess, I guess a counter example that somebody might make, might make, and I've, I'm, I think Triple H makes in like one of W's documentaries is, you know, look at uh, either, I don't know if it was WrestleMania 25 or 26, where Undertaker and Shawn Michaels, have this amazing super memorable match at WrestleMania and it's followed by Randy Orton and Triple H. The crowd is dead for Randy Orton and Triple H. This proves the case that you need a cooldown match before uh, your match that follows it because they exhausted the crowd. I, I think the, the answer is no, you didn't need a cooldown match. You just needed to put Undertaker and Shawn Michaels on last. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's to me, Triple H kind of being mad that <laughs> his match wasn't, I mean, that was the stage. Well, that was the start of that was this that was kind of the, the period of Triple H is gonna have this 33 minute WrestleMania main event that if it's going on last is gonna be like interminably long. And next that was year, that was WrestleMania 25 because next year when they had the rematch between Shawn Michaels and Undertaker, that match was in the main event, which ironically 
the 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 big match on that show was the John Cena Batista match, which I think was pretty short. Like I think it was like 15 minutes. I might be wrong on that, but that probably would have worked following the Undertaker Shawn Michaels match. It's 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 a mix of fan interest and diversity of, of styles and what you're going to see. I think is what it kind of comes down to. I think you can have the cool down match. But the cooldown match maybe can just be a different style of match that the fans react to a little bit differently, as opposed to um, we're going to have just a bunch of singles matches over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I, I guess I think that there's there has not been a promotion that in the United States that just put your put your card in the order of the degree which you you, you think the crowd is anticipating these mm-hmm. matches and I think that would sl- slowly build up. Yeah, I think that would work. But but we, we do everything backwards here in the United States. Um in more ways than one. The crowd is going to be tired. They're fatigued. They can't. Yes. Everyone knows at the end of sporting events that the crowds are just gassed and they're never right. making any noise. It could be an incredible, you know, buzzer beating moment, but the crowds will just not react because they've yes. been cheering for three hours. The, the third quarter of the Celtics game tonight is, is going to be a cool down period. So uh, <laughs> look forward to that. Um, so I think that's all we have for this week. Uh, you can there's a WrestleNomics Patreon, patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. You have my TV ratings reports that come out there nearly every day. You get access to my viewership data. You get access to other things as well. Uh, then we have Chris Gull's slide, which we, don't, which we don't need today, but you can follow him too. Uh, thanks to Jesse Collins for, for joining us again. Uh, outstanding job again. Um, and thanks to Post Wrestling for being our distribution partners. God, we love our distribution partners. Uh, so I think that's all. We will talk to you again next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for supporting WrestleNomics. Bye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.